Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do confess before you right now that you are indeed holy. We praise you because you're holy. We praise you too because even in your holiness, you came to us in Jesus. We praise you for being able to do that. We thank you for doing that. And God, we want to understand now what that means. So God, would you speak? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So who is the star in your family tree? You would think that Jason Kelsey would be the star in his family tree. Jason Kelsey plays in the NFL. He plays for the Philadelphia Eagles. He's the center. He's been to the Pro Bowl multiple times. He's won a Super Bowl. Not only that, but Jason Kelsey is actually a singer. Don't know if you know that, but he's released a couple of kind of side market Christmas albums. Jason is a little bit of a celebrity. You'd think he'd be the hero of his family tree. He's the oldest brother, for goodness sake. But guess what? His younger brother is Travis Kelsey. Travis is also in the NFL. He plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. The irony is that his brother, Jason, helped him to get into the NFL. Travis is the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, one of the tight ends. And here's the thing. Jason has released two Christmas albums, but the biggest single on his Christmas album is a duet he recorded with his brother, Travis. And Jason may be a little bit of a celebrity, but you pretty much can't turn the television on right now without seeing Travis Kelsey's face. Oh, and by the way, Travis is dating Taylor Swift. So who's the hero, the star in your family tree? Well, as we look at Jesus's family tree in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we see clearly that Jesus is the star of that family tree. I'd like to read for you again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and there are going to be a lot of names in here. And you might wonder at some point, did he just pronounce that name right? And I would ask you, do you know him? (laughs) The genealogy of Jesus the Christ. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. 
Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Jesus is the star of his family history. But at the same time, as we look at this family history, we realize that there's a co-star. And the co-star is King David. Look again at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right here, we find pointed out for us all over again that David is the co-star. At the beginning, it says Jesus is the Christ. What that means is he is the anointed one, the king to come like King David. And then right there in that heading sentence, we are given two of Jesus' ancestors to focus on, David and Abraham, the stars, the co-stars of this ancestry. But David, while he comes second, is mentioned first. And as we read through the genealogy of Jesus, the life of King David is the pivot point. We're reminded in one way after another that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the star of his family tree. But King David is the co-star. And it's important for us to know and understand David's role. Because as we come to know and understand David's role, 
we learn something. We learn that God keeps his promises. And that's a very important thing for us to understand. Because we discover that God made promises to King David. Now, God began making those promises when David secured his kingdom. David, back in history, became finally the king of Judah and of Israel. He secured the entire kingdom together, and he was able to secure the borders of the kingdom and establish a kind of peace. He conquered a new capital for his new kingdom, the city of Jerusalem, and made Jerusalem now his capital. And He went into Jerusalem, and as he began building his capital, he looked around and saw that the worship of God was still happening in a tent. Now, it was a tent that was specially designed for the worship of God, but it was still a tent. And David determined that he should build a permanent house for God, a temple where God could be worshiped. And so he proposed that to God through one of the prophets. And the prophet went to ask God, would this be okay? Fully expecting that God would give his approval. But instead, God said, instead of you building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. God was saying to King David that that he would rest at the end of his life and that there would be descendants who would come from him and from his line. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, we read that God is saying through the prophet, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, a dynasty, if you will. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's saying you will have descendants. Those descendants will become a dynasty and that dynasty is going to reign over my people Israel and they will live under your headship. God also promised that he would have a special relationship with the descendants of King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, again, verse 14, we read, I will be to him, that is to David's descendants, a father, and he shall be to me a son. That means that God will, in a sense, adopt the descendants of David to be kind of anointed, adopted sons of God as well. God goes on to say that as I adopt these sons, as they begin to represent me in the world and I have this special relationship with them, when they obey me, I will bless them and I will bless the land. But if they disobey me, I will discipline them, and I will discipline the land that I am promising to give to you and to your descendants. But God clarifies, even if I discipline your sons, your descendants, your house, my steadfast love will never depart from you and from your house. In fact, God really is promising to give David an eternal kingdom. He promises to give David and his descendants land, to give them rest from their enemies, to give them peace in that land if they will obey him. And he promises to give David a rule that extends forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, through the prophet, God says, and your house and your kingdom shall 
be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Someone is going to come from the house of David, and that someone is going to always be there. And God says, I will eliminate the enemies of your household ultimately, and you will be a source of blessing. You won't just conquer. You will be a blessing to all of the nations. Through your descendants, through your house, David, there will be a kingdom that will stretch forever. Now, the interesting thing is that behind all these promises, it was clearly understood that God was still always the ultimate king of his people. The descendants of David would sit on the throne and they would represent God in ruling the people, but they were delegates of God. They had to ultimately submit themselves to God because it was always clearly understood that while the king ruled on earth, God ruled the king and through the king ruled his people because the kingdom is ultimately God's. Now, interestingly, King David's family, his family tree became a little more than a stump. You see, King David's descendants actually disobeyed God probably more often than they obeyed him. Take one of his descendants named Ahaz, King Ahaz. King Ahaz came to the throne, and the Bible tells us that he put idols in every high place that he could find in the land. And the Bible adds that not only did he put idols in the high places, but he went to the valleys as well to worship the pagan gods. And in the valleys, the Bible tells us, King Ahaz sacrificed his own sons by burning them alive to pagan gods. Then God was displeased with this, and as he had promised, was beginning to discipline Ahaz. Israel and, and Syria came against the kingdom of Judah, and the losses under King Ahaz were astounding. God was trying to get King Ahaz's attention. But instead of turning to the Lord and asking God for help, King Ahaz turned to the Assyrian Empire and he stripped the temple in Jerusalem of its gold and its silver, and he sent it to the king of Assyria to bribe the king of Assyria to go to battle against Ahaz's enemies. But instead, the Assyrians began to bully Ahaz. And in response, King Ahaz decided to redecorate the temple in Jerusalem, but he redesigned it so that it would look like the temples of the gods of his enemies because he was hoping to get the favor of the gods of the enemies who were persecuting him. Ahaz, just one example of the ways that the descendants of David disobeyed God. And there were consequences for their disobedience. 
Under David's grandson, Rehoboam, God took part of the kingdom away. The northern ten tribes of Israel split away, and the descendants of David were left with the kingdom of Judah in the south. And they continued to disobey God, and warnings of judgment and consequences came. And even in the middle of the flow of the story, there was judgment. There were enemies who persecuted them. There was difficulty. There there, there were times of, of famine and distress and sickness in the land as a result of their disobedience. But the kings did not fundamentally change and come back to God. And word came that something worse was coming judgment through an empire followed by exile. And it happened in the 6th century BC. The Babylonian empire invaded Judah. They took and destroyed cities of Judah. They laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they ultimately breached the wall and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple there. And they exiled many of the survivors of this conquest to live in exile in Babylonia, including the king at the time, a son and descendant of King David. And the people asked, what does this mean? We were promised a land, and the land is gone. We were promised peace. Peace is gone. We were promised a king from the line of David, and the king is in prison. What does all of this mean? And what followed were centuries of exile and difficulty and disappointment. But all along the way, it's important to remember that God made a fundamental promise to David and to his line. We find this promise contained in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. God said that he would discipline his sons, the sons of David. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But look at what God said next. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. My steadfast love will not depart from him. That's a critically important promise. God says, my steadfast love will not depart from the house of David. Steadfast love is an important term in the Old Testament. It's a way of speaking of God's loyal love to his people and to his covenant. It is a fundamental characteristic of God that we learn about in the Old Testament. And God says, my steadfast love will never depart from the house of of David. But at the same time, the house of David had been reduced to a stump. The house of David at one time could be pictured as a great tree, but in judgment, God had cut down that tree, and all that was left was a stump, and that stump appeared to be lifeless. 
But the prophet said, that stump is still alive. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of the house of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What God is saying through the prophets is that while the house of David appears to be a lifeless stump, there is life left in it. God has a plan left for it. Something is going to come from the house of David, from this stump. It's going to be like a branch that is springing up. Someone is going to come from that stump. He will be a king again like David. And all of the promises that have been made to the house of David and to the people under David's rule are going to be fulfilled through that someone, that branch that's going to come from the stump that is the house of David. And God has kept his promises through Jesus. I want you to take note of that today. God has kept his promises through Jesus. That's why it's so important that we read at the beginning of the book of Matthew that Jesus is descended from David. Jesus is presented to us in Matthew chapter 1 from verse 1 forward as the son of David. He is the direct biological descendant of King David. He is the legitimate heir to the throne of King David. That's what Matthew chapter 1 is arguing. And that's important because it tells us that God has kept his promise to the house of David. Jesus is repeatedly presented to us in the New Testament as the son of David. And that means that all of the promises that apply to the house of David in the Old Testament are applied to Jesus time after time in the New Testament. Jesus is presented to us as a king. He is presented to us as the son and the heir of King David, and that means that the house of David still exists and thrives. Promise kept. Just as God has always promised to have a special relationship with those from the house of David, the sons of David, God the Father has a special relationship with Jesus Christ. God promises to adopt the sons of David as his very own sons. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus is not the adopted son. He is the rightful beloved son, which is what we read and discover when Jesus is baptized in Luke chapter 3, and a voice from heaven speaks. The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, that is on Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And we read this over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus is the beloved, only begotten, unique son of God. He has a special relationship. He's from the house of David, and he has a special relationship with God the Father, promise kept. 
And God has promised to the house of David an eternal kingdom. And we read that Jesus is the one who has this eternal kingdom. Jesus' eternal kingdom is proclaimed in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, where a prophet says, He, that is Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Look at that. There will be no end. He has a kingdom that lasts forever. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is king who reigns and rules now. But we know at the same time that through Jesus, there is more to come. Revelation chapter 7 is a scene from, from, from heaven where we see that Jesus reigns with his Father in heaven. After this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, that is the throne of God, and before the Lamb who is there at the throne of God. And they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is presented to us in eternity, in the heavenly places, as enthroned with God the Father and worshiped by all of creation. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is at some point going to reign over a millennial kingdom in a different way, and the Bible makes it fundamentally clear that Jesus is going to rule and reign over the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Promise kept. Now, this leads to a question for us. It leads to a question for you. Will you trust God? Trust is grounded in the past. You see, trust looks back at everything that's happened before and begins to discern patterns and form an opinion based on those patterns. And that's why it's so important that we look at the fact that all of the promises that have been made to King David in the past have been kept. Because trust is grounded in the past. And we see that in the past, God has been trustworthy. So trust is grounded in the past, but trust is confirmed in the present. You see, trust in the present looks around to see, again, patterns, and ask the question, are you reliable? And asks the question, are you good? And are you for me? And that's why it's so important that we see that God who has made promises in the past still makes promises to us today and fulfills 
those promises to us today because trust is grounded in the past and it is confirmed in the present. And we see that God is still making promises. God makes promises to forgive us, and then he does. God makes promises to adopt us as his sons and daughters, and then he does. God makes promises to give us new life and to change us fundamentally from the inside out, and then he does. God promises to give us freedom in Christ, and then he does. And it happens all around us. We are the living examples, the living proof that trust that is grounded in God's past is confirmed in our present to you and to me. Because trust has to be confirmed in the present. But trust is also pointed toward the future. Because you see, trust learns to expect Having seen pattern in the past, learns to expect. Having been confirmed in the present, trust dares to hope. And there are promises that God has made that are still out there. God has still promised us that Jesus will come again. God has still promised that we get resurrection and eternal life. God has still promised that he will make the world as it is, fallen and broken, into the world as it should be. God has still promised to defeat finally and forever his enemies' sin and death and evil. God has still promised us resurrection and eternal life. And we dare to expect these things. And we dare to hope. But trust is the issue. Trust was the issue when I was learning how to rock climb indoor with an auto belayer. My two sons have learned how to rock climb, and they decided that they love it. And so when they visited us here in Connecticut, they wanted to go rock climbing. And being naturally competitive, I said, yeah, sure. But I have a pretty profound fear of heights. So we went rock climbing at the indoor gym in Glastonbury. And when, when you get there, in order to climb without learning how to use ropes and systems to belay yourself, they have an auto belayer. Now, an auto belayer is a, a system, a, a mechanical system that keeps tension on your line as you climb. So you climb, there's tension on your line, and then if you fall, when you fall, <laughs> it will slowly grab you and let you down to the ground. You see, in order to learn how to climb, you have to learn how to fall. So, went to the, to the gym in Glastonbury and, and got with a coach who was teaching us how to climb and teaching me how to use the auto belayer. They hooked me up in the harness and I started climbing up the wall. I got, uh, you know, a, a good way up the wall and the coach, before I could go any further, wanted me to fall. He said, so now what I want you to do is, is let go of the wall and, and fall. Nothing in me said, sure. Sure. 
So I clung to the wall for my life, which was my natural instinct. And the coach said, no, you've got to let go of the wall. You've got to learn how to fall if you're going to learn how to climb. And I looked around, and I saw everybody around me, short people, tall people, thick people, skinny people, climbing up walls, letting go, and the autobelayer catching them and letting them down to the ground. And I said, okay. And I let go, and I fell, and it caught me, and it let me down to the ground. And pretty soon, I was enjoying climbing, and I was enjoying falling. Trust is the issue. And trust is the issue when it feels like our lives have been reduced to stumps. Because when your life has been reduced to a stump, you don't want to trust anymore. And sometimes our lives are reduced to stumps as a consequence of our own actions. Sometimes because of things that we've done, our lives are being reduced down to the point where the consequences that we experience for our actions make us feel like a stump, like everything is gone. Sometimes our lives are reduced to a stump because it seems that other people have taken something from us. They're, they're hacking away at our lives. And we feel like there's next to nothing left. We're just a stump. And sometimes it feels like our lives are being reduced to a stump because our lives that were just once big are now small. Something's gone. Our health, our job, our family, our money. And we find ourselves feeling like stumps. And when we feel like stumps, it's very difficult to trust. That's why it's so important that we see today that God has kept his promises to David and to his house. It has to feel an odd thing to come in on two successive weekends and read the Matthew chapter 1 genealogy of Jesus filled with all these strange names that you can't pronounce that are filled with people that you don't even know who these people are. But what Jesus' genealogy is telling us, among many other rich things, 
is that God has kept his promises to the house of David. And that tells us that God is trustworthy. Will you trust God? You may feel like you're halfway up a rock wall today, afraid of heights and clinging on to the wall for all that you're worth. And down here at the bottom, I'm standing there and saying, let go. And there's nothing in you that wants to let go and believe what I'm saying. But look all around you and recognize that God has been trustworthy in the past. Look around you and see God is trustworthy in the present. And let go. Give God your life. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.